0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker. You'll find what you came for here, and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
0: Hey, it? on, a, on, a, All right. Hello. How are you? Welcome to The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy in Los Angeles. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. And I have on the podcast today, Anna Q., She has a debut memoir out on Catapult. It is called Made in China, a memoir of love and labor. And it is a story that really packs a punch. It is a story of immigration and assimilation that cuts against the grain when compared to the more sanitized versions of the American immigration story. It's really harrowing. It's also a story about family and abuse and trauma and perseverance and overcoming incredibly long odds. The fact that the book is in print is a testament to Anacuse's strength. And after I finished reading it, I actually reached out to her and wrote to her. It's one of these books that's really emotional to read. It's unbelievable what she went through as a child. And you're going to hear us talk about this in just a bit. Today's episode is made possible by Harper, publisher of Snowflake by Louise Nealon, a number one international bestseller and the official September pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Roddy Doyle calls Snowflake, quote, mad and wonderful. I thought I was reading one thing, then discovered several times that I was reading a different, even better thing, end quote. I just finished reading Snowflake myself, and it is delightful. Louise Nealon is a very talented young writer. She's from Ireland, and Snowflake is a novel about love and family, depression, joy and coming of age. It is heartfelt and funny and moving and true to life. There's a lot of deep uh, wisdom in it. Snowflake by Louise Nealon available now from Harper. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDSE. So let's get to the main event here uh, on this uh, Sunday episode. I'm doing a Sunday episode. What do you know? And I could not be happier... Um, to be sharing with you right now, this conversation with Anna Q. Once again, her new memoir is called Made in China, a memoir of love and labor available now from Catapult. Here she is folks. This is Anna Q. You know,
1: I think I was trying to capture a couple of points. The first point is really arriving at a single moment of betrayal. Um, and that betrayal was reporting my parents to the authorities when they put me to work in, a, in in their sweatshop in Queens. And the second moment that really rose out of the book was when I wrote to Child Services in 2015. You know, and it was a really interesting moment because it was a, a very difficult moment. Um, I, you know, I had call child services when I was young and I thought they had helped me in all of these ways. And so I, um, assumed my records would provide information on my case, but I didn't, uh, I didn't think that, um, their findings would be, um, quote unquote unfounded. Um, so I was really shocked find that I had been left behind by the system, and it really, you know, made me rethink my childhood, rethink in terms of who I was going to for help, rethink the system in which I grew up and sort of really believed in, Um, and you know, it was a really, really difficult time, especially after calling child services on your family, and I think everybody can relate to that, right? Sort of the the betrayal, um, and then having to face that betrayal when you go home.
0: Okay, so your, you know, your story is um, multifaceted. You're telling a lot mm-hmm. of different. You're telling a lot of different stories and yeah. working with a lot of different themes. But just to make sure listeners understand uh, the basics, you know, this is a story about immigration, mm-hmm. and. You were born in China and spent the first seven years of your life there yes and then That's were correct. and then were brought over um by your mother at age seven to queens in, mm-hmm. in in new york and Can you talk a little bit about that process because it's a very common one for mm-hmm. people who are immigrating to the United States for parents to precede their children in immigration, which you know, I'm a father, I have two kids, like the thought of leaving my child behind for years at a time while I assimilate or try to get a foothold in a new country, that's difficult to imagine. That would be extremely painful, but it happens all the time. And so for you, um, you know, your mother preceded you, uh, over here to the United States, your father passed away, um, when you were a toddler and you were raised by your grandparents in china for the first seven years of your life correct
1: yes so my father died um when i was about one when i just turned one and um my mother didn't know what to do um and the only opportunity she had was um to come to the united states um and she left me with my grandparents which is it is very common you know it it it's many many generations you know um During the late 1800s, wives couldn't even come to the United States um, because of the laws that were in place in America. But, you know, it is common for immigrants to not only leave their kids at home, but sometimes those, those kids are born here and they're sent back because they don't have the system, the support system to take care of them. And hopefully, you know, those kids will come back to the United States. So, um, it is a culture where, you know, a community raises your children, but what's lost in that process is that, you know, connection between mother and child. Um, and I'm not sure I've ever had that with my mother. Um, I didn't really remember her. Um, when I saw her, her voice sounded familiar and it was a a really strange experience. I remember it pretty vividly.
0: So wait, you're seven years old. Mm-hmm. you get on a plane. Are you with anybody or did your mother come and get you? I'm trying to remember the details.
1: Yeah. So, um, my mom came to the United States, uh, was working in a sweatshop in Queens, ended up marrying the owner of that sweatshop. my stepfather and they had two kids and then she came back for me. Okay. And she, yep. So I met her at the airport and she, my, my stepfather came too, but she, I guess she got out of the, off the plane first. She gave us a couple of minutes with her alone. And then my stepfather came, which was like also weird, but that's how I remember it. Remember it. Um, and we stayed for maybe two days and then they took me and bought me to the United States to Queens. Um, and it was, it was a huge adjustment. Not only, um, you know, had I forgotten anything and everything to do with my mother, but here was um, a father, and I've, I, I had never had a father before. I didn't, you know, understand my relationship to these little children, um, and I was, you know, I, I in Winzo I only spoke Winsoneese with my grandparents, and my stepfather spoke Mandarin. Um, and so I had to learn Mandarin before I learned English. Um, and I, and then because I was the oldest, I was also the first one to, you know, be in public school. And that was a huge, huge, um, difficult (laughs) assimilation time.
0: Well, and not only that you're saying goodbye to your grandparents who have raised you for the first seven years of your life. It's like saying goodbye in effect to your parents.
1: Yes. And, um, and I really, you know, never saw them again, pretty much. Um, my grandfather's dead now and my grandmother, I've been very, very fortunate as you know, in the end of the, that's, um, I won't give the end of the book away, but, um, that's one of the last scenes, um, in the book. But, you know, it took that long to see my grandmother again. Um, and that's, you know, um, I think that's, less common maybe, but, you know, it is common in the sense that she was in China and we were in the United States and, you know, her mobility oh. is, was not the same as it is for, um, you know, uh, people with green cards on this end or, uh, people with American citizenship.
0: And you dedicate the book to her, correct?
1: I do. Yeah. I do. I didn't know who else to dedicate it to.
0: <laughs> but I, I was touched by it because I think I, and forgive me if I'm um, paraphrasing it badly, but it was, you know, um, to my grandmother who taught me how to love or something like yes. that. And yes, this is certainly a story about a child who is searching for that and finding it sorely lacking in her home environment. Uh, so to have that person, you know, that parental figure, even if it's a grandparent who does, uh, offer that. I mean, like what a lifeline. I, I made sense to me why you would, why you would, um, dedicate the book to her mm-hmm. because what I find when I read stories like this, or I hear stories like this, or I meet people in my life who come from difficult circumstances, mm-hmm. but who also, triumph and and find a way to transcend their circumstances is that there's always at least one person uh it seems like it's either a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or a teacher but some adult in their life who looked out for them and who um kind of cut against the trend that they were Mm -hmm. dealing with and in your case it was your grandparents and your grandmother in particular
1: yeah absolutely um you know, I've been in therapy for a long time, um, over 10 years. I actually started therapy when I was, when um, I started writing the book, actually. because I, I, <laughs> I went in and I was like, I have writer's block. I need you to help me get rid of writer's block. Um, and I chuckle now because, you know, I really needed therapy at that time. And it's really transformed my life. Um, but my one of the things that my therapist really made me realize was, you know, the question of how kids or how people, um, you know, first experience love and how how they know what love is. And because my childhood was as tough as it was, I don't necessarily know if I would have known what love was without my grandmother. And um, it was a huge blessing in the sense that you know, it gave me the foundation, but also it gave me a feeling of, um, feeling like I deserved love. And if I didn't feel that way, I would never have been able to leave my mother's house. Um, as I have now, I would have not fought as hard as I did to get out of that house. And I think, you know, my life would be completely different. Yeah. Um, Well, I I
0: was going to say like the the resourcefulness that I sensed in you on the page as I was reading your story, I can't help but draw a line from the fact that you were lucky enough to spend those first seven years in a nurturing home Mm -hmm. and in a, you know, a relatively happy environment and kind of, you got to be a kid, you know, the way that you describe uh, Wenzu is, uh, Mm -hmm. is kind of idyllic, you know, the way that you would hope to remember childhood, like running around and playing with friends and having a sense of freedom and a sense of community. Um, you know, they always say that child development, um, you know, the most critical years are when they're like two and three and four or whatever, very young, you know, these things, yes. Yeah. if, if love is completely lacking at those ages, I think it can be harder for a child to maybe develop the resources that they would need to overcome difficulty. Um, but you were fortunate, I guess, in that sense. And, and, I have to believe that whatever resourcefulness you were able to summon in your adolescence stemmed from that.
1: Yeah, I think I think so much of it stemmed from that. Um, yeah, I do feel really fortunate. Um, and I feel really fortunate to have met my grandmother again, you know, in my 30s as an adult. So it really, it was like full circle in terms of all of my childhood that, you know, I was trying to remember in this book and then finally meeting the person that I was writing about and who, um, I felt had given me that. Um, and that was, you know, really healing in a lot of ways. Um, so I feel really grateful for that. And I think my grandmother's really grateful for that. When I first saw her, um, she kept thanking Buddha, (laughs) which is funny, but yeah, she just kept thanking Buddha for, um, you know, for chances to to meet me again.
0: And what about the humanizing quality of the experience of reconnecting with your grandmother because I could imagine for somebody in your shoes that it would be natural and tempting to idealize mm-hmm. the lost grandparents who nurtured you and loved you when you were little and whose memory is fleeting. You know it's hard to hang on to any memories. I can barely remember what happened yesterday, let alone what happened when I was 5 years old yeah Uh, so to get to be with her and connect with her personally and uh, as an adult you've not only gotten to reconnect with that love and that uh, that deep relationship but you've also gotten to see your grandmother through your adult eyes and to see her as more of a human being and less of a like an imaginary person or an ideal like can you talk a little bit about that, like how how, she's, yeah. how that's informed your understanding of yourself?
1: Yeah, I love that question. Um, one of the things I realized, you know, in my adulthood when visiting my grandmother was just this understanding that culturally, the Chinese culture, um, nobody protects anyone else the way that we protect people. People in this culture, I think, you know, um, in the American culture, if you know your husband dies um, or the father of your child dies, you try to make up for that loss. And in in the Chinese culture, that's really not so. Um, you know, nobody rushes in to take up the space that that person left when they passed away. And that was something I learned um, in my thirties. And that was a really interesting way of understanding that. And what I, and how I came to realize it is that I, um, you know, I talked to my grandma about a lot of the stuff that my mother did and, um, our relationship and she, you know, doesn't excuse it, but also doesn't, you know, she's not really on my side either. And her way of, just sort of justifies it by saying that, um, you know, I used to beat your mother senseless and we're fine now. And that's the stuff, that's the kind of relationship you have to put up with. And, um, and that was really hard for me to accept as an adult, um, you know, opening up to the one person that I thought could have empathy for me. um, yeah and i i wasn't able to get that validation and um you know there's a line in at the end of the book about you know how we're all children we're just all children raising children, and you know my grandmother's in her eighties but I, I you know now in my thirties, I see the way that she um thinks about certain things that you know is slightly racist isn't correct, isn't educated um But also, um, you know, the sort of that abuse that's in my family that doesn't get swept under the rug. She's so unashamed of it. And that was really fascinating to me. Um, The way that I can see why my mother is the way she is, because she's had a grandmother or she's had a mother like my grandmother, And that was really interesting for me because then again, you know, that humanized not only uh, my grandmother, but also my mother Uh, in a really interesting way because suddenly, you know, um, I began to think about this sort of support uh, she got from my grandmother. And she didn't, you know, she didn't have much. She didn't get much support from my grandmother. There was not much my grandmother could give her.
0: Well, I think that's one of the m- more um, insightful aspects of your book and admirable aspects because I think, you know, based on what you went through as a kid, I think a lot of people would be willing to give you a pass if you didn't care to delve deeply <laughs> into <laughs> yeah. the nu- nuances of your mother's difficulties and suffering or the nuances of your grandmother's difficulties and suffering. But I think it's wise of you to do so, not only because it deepens the reader's understanding of how these cycles perpetuate themselves mm-hmm. from generation to generation, but also that I don't know if a person can ever move through these kinds of difficult memories and traumas and relationships in the absence of understanding. And I think I your that. book your book understands that you can never outrun your ancestry Mm -hmm. like no matter how far away geographically uh you could get from your mom or your grandmother or your personal history it's always right there with you and so the only thing to really do is to look at it and to try to understand it and i think one of the things that's so interesting about your book in this respect is that as difficult as it can be to um or as easy as it can be to kind of like despise your mom on the page sometimes Mm -hmm. for the things that she puts you through. Mm -hmm. When I finished the book, I had empathy for her and that's to your credit. Like I felt for her because I think you understood her personal circumstances and you gave her humanity on the page. And instead of just kind of painting her two dimensionally, which it could be easy to do, I would imagine,
1: yeah, yeah, I think you know, um as a parent, the people that know you best are your children, and um, I felt the weight of that when I was writing this book i want i I needed her to be an empathetic character, um, and and you were so right about what you were saying in terms of compassion because when you write a book like this, there has to be, um, you know, what can you get from it? Right. What, what's at stake? Um, why am I telling this story? And I think, um, you know, I spent 10 years writing this book and of course I was really angry. Um, and you know, I wrote scene after scene. Um, most of them didn't even make it into the book. Um, but, you know, a few years in, I, I I really asked, I began to ask myself what I wanted out of the book and what I want people getting out of the book. And I didn't, you know, I didn't want just a, a narrative about abuse. I wanted something bigger than that. I wanted to look at these systems. I wanted to look at society. I wanted to look at culture. I wanted to look at immigration. I wanted to look at assimilation i you know i I wanted to look at the complex nature of survival and um and you know to carefully look at a woman that um that is selfish in some ways um but also is not you know she's she's uh, i don't think of her as just purely a bad person I've never really thought of her as a bad person um she's always been pretty manipulative and very um calculated but um you know I think um nobody is trying to be you know a bad person to someone else there has to be something behind it and so I tried my best to sort of figure out what that was and um even when I couldn't figure it out, I still felt like um, I wanted it to sit on the page. Um, so I don't excuse her for any of uh, what she's um, done. Um, and I and and you know I I've been thinking about the idea of forgiveness. Um, as you're saying, we get lots of emails, um, and <laughs> I think just the other day I got a life coach. That emailed me and basically was like, "Oh, um, congratulations on your book. Um, let me know if you want to talk. I can talk you uh, to you through your forgiveness for your mother." And I, it was a really interesting email um, because I don't think that that's the type of question I ask myself. I don't necessarily know what forgiveness has to do with anything. Um, and I mean, you know, I, I, I I still do love my mother. Um, I just can't have a relationship with her and I just can't exist in the same space as her. Um, but you know, I, I don't harbor some deep hate and I didn't write this book. Um, to sort of boo-hoo this is what happened to me um, you know I wanted to look at craft I wanted to create something um, and um, I wanted to also write against that good immigrant narrative that model m- model minority myth um, you know everybody assumed I had a tiger mom and it's and it you know that wasn't the case um, what was underlining for my mother was was not a tiger mom, you know, it was more of her own survival, um, and I want, I thought that there should be space out there for this kind of narrative, especially because I grew up in Queens, in New York, and this isn't, you know, people think that there, that this shouldn't be happening, or this is, this would have been, um, you know, this, something like this happened 60, 90 years ago, but not, you know, in the aughts. Uh, in the nineties and, and, and it is happening. It's still happening. My parents' sweatshop is still in Queens.
0: Mm. So just so listeners can get a clearer idea of what your childhood entailed, you know, we've talked about you coming over and joining your mother in Queens. She had, after the passing of your father had remarried the owner of this sweatshop Mm -hmm. and then had two kids with him. So you move into a household where you're the eldest child with two step siblings and like the, one of the words that comes to mind for me is harsh. Another word that comes to mind for me as I think about the situation you were in is, is pressures. Um, and I think of those in particular with relationship to the immigration story and like the, the sanitized immigration story that we're sort of fed in America on a regular basis, but you present a much more complicated picture and You entered a situation where your mother, uh, if we're going to try to see the human aspects of her choices and situation, is remarried to a man um, within a certain cultural framework that was, I think, uh, Chinese. You know, but now kind of uh, grafted on top of life in Queens, and then um, I think there's an enormous amount of fear in your mother Mm -hmm. to lose what she had. You know, like. So, you come in, and um the treatment the, the treatment that you receive from your mom and from your siblings and from your stepfather is less than ideal. Can you talk just a little bit for listeners about like your role in that family and how things took a dark turn?
1: yeah, um I never really fit into the family, and I think it was sort of um the situation that my mother set forth almost immediately Um, you know I wasn't privy to the same food the same rights as my siblings Um, I you know when there was no maid I sort of had to pitch in and do everything that uh, a maid would have done and you know all of this was um, this was something that I owed this family for you know putting me up and allowing me to live in their house um so it very very felt very much felt like it was partly uh charity um and I had to do whatever I could to balance that charity out um and you know I didn't I didn't want that reality I refused that reality um I didn't understand why my half-siblings um were treated so much better. And I, I just didn't agree with my mother that they were better than me in whatever way she felt was what was the case just because their father was alive and mine wasn't. Um, and so, you know, we fought a lot. We fought a lot because I refuse to obey, um, and be obedient in the way that she wanted me to, um, and, you know, I was also growing up in America in the school system, and I thought I had some rights. Um, and I think it was it was hard for her in the sense that, you know, I think they had a great situation and I came and it, to them it felt like I stirred shit up. Um, and I think that's sort of their view of me still, Um I'm at a point where I'm not exactly sure how, you know, my siblings, um, experienced all of this. I, I, I can't even tell you cause our lives were so vastly different. You know, they got, uh, allowances and I didn't, and they, you know, they would hide food from me. It was just like crazy. They would, um, you know, they would have store bought clothes and my mother would just bring me whatever she had in the factory. Um, so it was a huge difference and um and it was all because of a class difference really um and you know my father was dead and I didn't have any money and this this stepfather um was working for everything so the house um you know the bathroom I used the food I ate um the school systems that I was being allowed into was all um, because of this family, and so I was, you know, supposed to, you know, say, do whatever my younger half-brother wanted, um, and not fight with anyone, and, um, you know, be seen, but um, but out of the way in terms of when my stepfather was there. Um, you know, I didn't really even have the right to, like, talk to him after a certain point, um and some of that was I think some of that is also cultural and that's one of the reasons I left that scene in um earlier in the book where you know there's a karaoke scene and my stepfather gives me a hug and that is sort of seen as inappropriate by my mother and um in her own way I think she was actually defending me and um and, you know, she just comes from a really conservative place in China. Um, and their education level was not very high. Um, my grandmother never went to school. My mother, I think, had uh, – my mother lies about it. But I think it was the sixth grade level of education. Mm. Yeah.
0: It's, it's like reminiscent of Cinderella almost. You mm. know, like the, you're kind of the Cinderella figure and you've got these step-siblings who are – um you know, held in higher esteem and have more rights and privileges than you do. And, uh, there's also like, you know, it's a really brutal situation because you're living under this roof and you're very isolated and you're a child. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, it's, it's, it's it's wrenching to read about and can also at times seem hard to believe. Um, but you you know, that any mother would allow her child to be treated like this. It's hard to believe. And then, at the same time, I think you do a nice job of making the reader realize that your mother was terrified of losing what she had. And from a cultural standpoint, you know, that bringing in a child from a previous marriage into a household that you've built, you know, into a family that you've built with, um, you know, your second husband. I think she was terrified of you disrupting that, mm-hmm. losing that relationship, and losing the foothold that she had. Uh, worked so hard to build and was so lucky in many ways to be able to build because you think about her lack of education and lack of resources when she arrived in Mm -hmm. america you know in some ways she is that kind of sanitized immigrant story like her her vector is pretty steep Mm -hmm. compared to many uh immigration stories like within one generation she went from basically rags to some version of riches yeah um and so i think you know it's it's the irony of these things is that you get there thinking that it's going to alleviate your anxieties. Mm -hmm. In in many ways, it only like ratchets them up.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, you know, a lot of this book is also about choice and the sacrifices we make, right? So, I mean, I think for my mother to achieve that American dream of hers, I was the sacrifice. Um, And in some ways, my American dream, she was the sacrifice. Um, Because I don't necessarily – I think – you know, we as we were talking about trauma, it is transgenerational. And even, you know, within my own act of calling child services, that is a, a, a relatively selfish act. Um, and it's an act that could have really caused some really large issues for my family. Um, but I didn't care at the time you know, the justify, uh, I, it, it just felt like a moment where, um, that was the only choice I had and I was going to make it because it was going to get me out of that situation. But that's exactly how my mother felt. Um, so, you know, I am very aware of these cycles. Um, and, um, it's hard not to judge her, but I, I think I, you know, must understand her because, um, I also see so much of it, of, of myself in it.
0: That's an interesting line to draw that, and I, and correct me if I'm, mm-hmm. if I'm misapprehending it, but the, the choice that your mother made to leave you behind in China, uh, that's a kind of sacrifice and a kind of selfish, uh, you know, a display of self-interest. And then the choice that you made, As a teenager, am I getting the age right when you called child services or you had child, Mm -hmm. you know, that choice was your act of, you know, your self-interested act and an act of sacrifice where you kind of repeat in a weird way or it's like an echo of that same choice. It's, it's, I think that's pretty astute of you to see it that way.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't something I was proud of. Um, you know, most of my friends, um, don't know the details. Um, I think this book comes out of, is, is very surprising for a lot of people that have known me for a long time. Um, and that's been really interesting just to have this book out there and have people know this about me um, because I felt like I was harboring this for so long. Um, and, you know, in some ways, it's, it, it, it feels like I'm coming clean too. Um' it's hard- it's hard to turn on your family, the only family that you have and the only family you know um and and say these people are abusing me um take me out of this house um yeah it's, it's yeah, no one was happy, Brad no one was happy in that household. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I I get it. I definitely, that's definitely what I got from reading the book. And, um, you know, one thing that we've, we've skipped in the narrative of your life and of your childhood is that there was a a rupture with your mother and your stepfather, um, that happened. Uh, I'm I'm not going to remember the age that you were at, but you actually got sent back to China. Yes. So you, can you talk a little bit about that process? Because that I mean, it's harrowing enough to have to come over at age seven and leave everything you know behind. But then to have your your mother tell you, no, you know, you screwed up and now we're kicking you out, not only of our house, but of this country. You're going all the way back to China where you essentially had to repeat the process of disorientation and assimilation all over again.
1: Yeah, it was it was terrible. Um, it was punishment. Um, so this. um I thought about leaving it out of the book, but I felt like it had to be in there to sort of show the escalation um, of offenses with that, uh, with my family. So, um, you know, I was just fighting my mom on being the maid because I thought she should hire another maid. And so that I could, uh, do my schoolwork. Um, and she thought that um they had done a lot for me and this was the least I could do. And so what that meant was, you know, I was doing chores from as soon as I got home till when she got home and helped and I helped her with dinner and then I cleaned up and then it was ten o'clock and I just didn't have any time to do homework. Um and You know, at that point I was 14. I had been in the United States for seven years and I had worked my ass off to finally, you know, do well in school. It took me so long to, you know, speak English without an accent, to um, be able to do homework on my own. And I just didn't want to fall behind again. And so um, there was so much frustration in me at that point because I just didn't understand why my education was not as important as my sibling's education. Um, and it was, you know, and just I just assumed it was because my mother um, thought more highly of them. Um, and and it made me really angry. So one night, a couple of months um into realizing I really needed help uh studying Spanish. <laughs> I um or social studies. Those were the two subjects. Social studies and Spanish were the two subjects that I just couldn't get away with not doing the homework, not studying. So I came downstairs um at around ten thirty uh at night after everybody had gone to bed and um, you know, in the living room and I'm spread out on the um coffee table trying to do my homework and suddenly I I feel something like on my leg and I sort of look down and I see my mother's um my mother's quilted robe and I freak I was I I didn't know what to do so of course immediately I started like putting my stuff away um and and then after I had put all the stuff away I didn't she, she didn't say anything. And she, she was just kind of hovering over me and knew she was really upset. So then I was like, okay, I'm going to take my book bag to the living room, um, where, you know, there was a designated spot where our book bags were supposed to go. So I put it there and then she followed me and, um, and I just couldn't face her. So I decided to keep walking. And so I walked into the kitchen and at that point, I know what to do. I was like, I'm just gonna get some water. (laughs) And she's just trailing behind me. And I'm freaking out. And so I get water. And, you know, she finally speaks. And she's like, what are you doing? Um, And I, I say, "Um,
0: I'm getting water, which, you know,
1: um, in my defense, that's literally what I was doing. But to her years, I was being smart. And so she's she took a swing at me and she slapped me. And, um, and at that point, I was just so, like, there's just so much happening in my body in terms of, like, her following me, me feeling angry about, like, wanting to do my homework and feeling self-justified. Um, and I pushed her back. And, you know, like, you know, your parents can beat you, but you are not allowed to lay a hand on your parents. It's, like, the worst the worst crime and, um, she, and she, you know, sort of laughs because she can't believe I pushed her. She smacks me again to see if I will do it again. And, and, you know, and there was definitely a second of like, I don't know what to do, but I, I just pushed her again. And she, so she storms off and she's like, um, we'll see what your stepfather says about this now. Um, and I'm, I'm just like standing in the kitchen, and um, and it's you know a really awful moment. I um, I you know I wish I could have unwinded those ten minutes, um, but I, I couldn't. So uh, two days later, they they just sent me back to China to live with a random couple. Um, and this random couple was the parent of one of their workers in the factory. And, um, this was a part of China I'd never been to. Um, you know, everything was different from like the environment to like what the food was like to the local dialect. So there was a lot that, it was a big change. And again, I didn't know these two old people, um, and they took me in and, um, and I, I basically had to live out my punishment. And and honestly, uh, she would have left me there forever because um, she, she put me in a boarding school, which was um, one of the hardest things I've had to experience. Um, you know, in boarding school, especially at that level, at junior high school level, um, it's, you know, incredibly competitive. Um, these kids had been studying Chinese since you know they could basically walk um and they took school very seriously and i you know i couldn't even understand the questions on the exams never mind figure out how to respond to them cuz it was all in Chinese um and you know i i could speak Chinese well enough but um but i didn't i, I mean i couldn't like they were it was like chemistry and, and, you know, Chinese history and all of the stuff that I had, I just didn't have the vocabulary for. And so it was, it was a really difficult time.
0: But eventually you for you you get, you get your way back to the United States. Yes.
1: I, um, I, um, I kissed a boy on the cheek and he kissed me on the forehead and I got kicked out of school. (laughs) Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, they they <laughs> they they basically said um, this inappropriate behavior may be fine in America, but it's not okay in China.
0: <laughs> you brought you brought great shame to your family yes, with I that peck great, on the cheek. Here.
1: Yes, I brought great shame onto my family, and uh, oh my God, my mom cursed cursed me out so bad. <laughs> on the phone after I got kicked out, and um, they basically couldn't find another boarding school to take me because it was in the middle of the semester at that point, and that's why she let me come home.
0: I mean, unbelievable to think about what might have happened had they found another boarding I know. school to take
1: you. I know, I was really lucky that. Um, so every uh, the 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 fake grandfather, the old man that um, was communicating with my mother he was actually pretty kind. They were both pretty kind. They sort of didn't want to know what was happening. They were kind of old and they wanted to live their lives. Um, And yet, you know, he was thrown into this conversation. He had to pretend to be my grandfather. He had to, you know, file all the paperwork. And he knew that I didn't belong there and that it was going to be impossible for me to in. And, um, and you know, my mom, my mom being my mom would be like, what if I gave you more money? Um, and, uh, you know, at one point he, I think he really helped me. He was like, I, she needs to go home. Um, and that made me really, really, you know, there are a few people in my life that, um you know just the, the those are the acts of kindness that I remember
0: and that were so pivotal
1: Yeah yeah
0: So you go back into a less than ideal domestic situation to put it diplomatically Mm -hmm. and you proceed to go through junior high and high school in New York. And at what age was it that you called that you finally called, uh, you know, talked to a a counselor and had child services called.
1: So I turned 15 um, a couple of, days prior to, um, coming back. And then once I came back almost immediately, I started working in the sweatshop and, um, and then, uh, I want to say four to six months in that was when I started, um, to see my guidance counselor.
0: And working in a sweatshop, you know, you, you talk about this in the book, which I, I found illuminating is, the the options available to chinese immigrants mm-hmm. in the back half of the 20th century I, I don't know if the situation has changed much since then but um you know you talk about like the the prevalence of chinese american immigrants in the garment industry or Chinese restaurants. Like you talk a little bit about why that is, because I think to the average reader, to the average person, they might not have that insight.
1: Absolutely. Um, I think one thing that, um, in the process of writing this book and doing a ton of research, both on China and the conditions in which my mother left, And also the United States in terms of the way we treat immigrants, legal and illegal, and Chinese immigrants specifically. Um, And I was most fascinated by, you know, New York, because that's where my family sort of entered into history. And um, I spent a lot of time at the New York Public Library doing that research. Um, It was fascinating to find out, for example, you know, that Chinatowns all over the country was more a necessity and safety than anything else. You know, there was such um, horrific discrimination and racism at that time. Um, you know, nobody would hire uh, Chinamen, right? Uh, no one would hire chinks. Um, and um, and these Chinatowns began burgeoning because they were the only... Um, community that would um, hire Chinese people. So it ended up being Chinese people hiring Chinese people. And that's how um, a lot of the community was built out. But it wasn't built out, um, you know, because they preferred Chinese people. It was more built out because of safety um, and that there were no other options, um, even for legal immigrants. Um, Never mind the illegal, you know, the illegal was is there's a lot behind there. And I think, you know, uh, one thing I do want to mention in terms of my mother's fear and why, uh, you know, growing up, I didn't really, I grew up very middle class, but, you know, my mother's family is very poor. We come from many, many generations of poverty and, um, it is only my mother, who's the youngest of five, that is middle class, um, that made it into middle class first and stayed in middle class and, you know, is is upper middle class now. But um, everyone else on my mother's side came illegally. And so that was the fear behind it, seeing sort of the difficult paths my aunt and uncle had when they came. So it was during my childhood, every time I was you know, bad. She would talk about you know how hard everyone else had it, and I had it so easy. All I had to do was like keep the house clean.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, that's the that's the metric that she was using. Mm-hmm. You know, she yeah. was looking. at, I think context matters. You yeah, know, it does. If you just talk to somebody on the street about what your mother did to you or how your childhood unfolded, again, it can be easy to get a two dimensional kind of like a mm-hmm. caricatured understanding of it, but. There's a lot of layers to this. People yeah. are complicated. And... People are
1: really complicated. And, um, you know, I think the judgment is is on the choices that prior generation has made. Right? I think because, um, you know, I would never make the kind of choices my mother made, but I've never gone hungry. Um, it's just not the same. Uh, I have a college degree. I have a master's. It, you know, I can, um, forage my way. Um, as she, as she said, growing up, like, you know, uh, I know English and she can drop me anywhere in the United States and I'd be fine. I'd find my way home. But you know, most immigrants aren't that lucky. Most immigrants within our circle.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, that was kind of the next line of questioning that I wanted to bring up with you is about this notion of, um, breaking cycles or breaking general intergenerational patterns of trauma and poverty and abuse or whatever you want to call it. You know, that's, that's something that you are actively undertaking, I think, in the writing of this book and in the telling of this story, but also in your day-to-day life, you talked about being in therapy for a long time, um, trying to get a handle on why this mm-hmm. has happened, uh, in your family. And, um, I guess I want to talk specifically from a narrative perspective about you getting to college because Mm -hmm. that part of the book felt unexpectedly dramatic and moving to me. Yeah. Like the intensity of the stakes, Uh, you know, because again, it's kind of like you getting out of that boarding school in China and getting to come home to mm-hmm. the States, you know, it could have easily gone the other way. Uh, the same yeah. the same can certainly be said about you going off to college, because had you not done that, your life looks a lot different today. Uh, mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. can you just talk about that process? Because I think when it comes to pattern breaking, uh, I guess you could argue that calling child services was maybe the first big move that you made to assert yourself and try to break out of the system that you were in. Mm-hmm. Um, but going to college you know was was huge because it it got you out of that household and it got you on a path to more autonomy and freedom and' um, just a healthier path. So talk a little bit about that because again, I think the the traditional narrative that we 're fed in America of a first generation of immigrant going to college is a lot more sanitized. And mm-hmm. we don't often hear yeah. about the fraught details and, the really high stakes. And, and certainly that was the case for you.
1: Yeah. Um, it was an incredibly emotional time for me. Um, and I think that set up a lot of my vulnerability probably in the next 10 years after. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, uh, I got into college, um, and I, you know, had done the application process myself, FAFSA myself, and I had paid, um, so the deposit from money I had saved working. And so when I got to school, um, two weeks in, you know, I get a bill for (laughs) the semester for the year, basically. And, um, I didn't have any money to pay it. And um, what I, because my parents made um, a decent amount of money, I didn't qualify for a lot of um, the loans. And the only thing I qualified for was um, co signing a loan. So they had to sign a loan for me, and my mother refused to. And, you know, it still makes me angry to this day. I just, I just felt so, so helpless. I didn't know how to convince this woman to sign this piece of paper so that I could go to college. I just, there was no empathy for me and there was no leverage I could use as her child. Um, and so it was, so traumatic that she, she told me that I should leave college and go work. And if I made enough money, I could go back to college. And I was hysterical because, you know, I had grown up middle-class, so I didn't know anyone that didn't go to college. Um, I didn't even, you know, if I left college, where was I going to go? She had kicked me out of the house and, I didn't know anyone else that wasn't in college. And so I, um, you know, I got, it was, it was really, really upset. I was, I was pretty hysterical. Um, and one of my um, roommates told me to go to financial aid and I just like was crying. I mean, he could barely understand what I was saying. I was crying so hard. And, um, we figured out that because I had called child services and because Mary, the social worker that I had been assigned, if we could get a letter from her, I could claim myself as an independent. Um, and normally you have to be 24. Um, so I had to I had to claim myself independent um, with the state. Um, and so I basically found Mary, I, I begged her, um, and of course, you know, this was like the second, second begging of, of the week. And it, it felt so hopeless to me. If my mother wasn't going to help me, why would this random stranger, um, you know, and I hadn't, I hadn't, you know, spoken to her for, for I think almost two years at that point. Um, but she came through, she came and, and I basically, you know, I started crying again cause I'm just At that point, I was crying to everyone um, and and saying, like, if you don't do this for me, I'm not going to be able to go to college. Um, And I think, you know, saying that um, made her reconsider and she gave me the letter. And um, and I've never cried out of happiness before, you know, before that moment. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That was a really... Um, big moment in the book for me. And then certainly a big moment in the story of your life, like to think of what would happen had she not come through. Yeah. You know?
1: Yeah. And, and it really, um, it just felt so dire. You know, I, nobody, none of my classmates could, Yeah, they, they, they couldn't empathize. They could, they didn't understand my situation. They, they saw the panic, but didn't know how to help. And, Um, and that feeling followed me for, you know, the next 10 years. Um, that fear of like not having any safety net, um, not having anyone to help me, not having anywhere to go.
0: But it makes you, I mean, I, I think of, um, my own experience, which is different. I did have a safety net, you know, and. Sometimes I wonder if I had too much of one, like, you know, like, was I over, <laughs> was I over nurtured, you know, uh, like I had that kind of family upbringing and I don't know, there's a certain, I, I don't mean to minimize, uh, um, what you've been through, but I do think that there's a certain toughness and resilience that you've been able to find as a result of these experiences. Um, not saying that you wouldn't have wanted a more nurturing childhood, but you, you know what I'm getting at? Like it definitely, it forced your hand in a tough way, but you've managed to, um, make it through, you know, with some help and some good luck here and there along the way, but mostly, mostly on your own.
1: Yeah. And I have to say, like, one of the reasons I focus on class so much in the book is, you know, I felt it so, it was so prevalent in my family, but the thing I couldn't really, um, let, sort of let go of is that, you know, um, being a part of this family did give me those opportunities. It, it allowed me to go through public school. It allowed me to get into college. I don't, you know, if, if my mother didn't marry this man and she didn't have these two kids and didn't bring me, um, it would have been a very different life for me. And so, you know, whether or not, I appreciate it, and, and you know as much as she took away from me, um, there were some things she 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 was able to give me and couldn't take away. Um, you know um, growing up in the states, um, going through the school system, um, speaking English, um, and I think part of my resilience is is her too. Uh, she's made sure I'm I'm very resilient.
0: Well, she's resilient herself. You yeah. Know? She's got a yeah. lot of that same grit. And, um, you know, I think some of it is innate. You know, you have, I don't know, just certain DNA or whatever that makes you kind of resilient and tough and intelligent and all the rest. But a lot of it is forced upon you. Yeah. You know, when life comes at you like this, you sort of have a couple of choices, right? You can either mm-hmm. you can either fold or you can just fight your way through it. And yeah. That's you know, you've certainly done the latter. And you know, buck the odds. You know, a lot of children in situations similar to yours don't emerge and thrive. You know, a lot Absolutely. of there are a lot of kids who wind up on a much more difficult course as adults than you've found uh, yourself on not that it's been simple or easy but just a better you know it's a pretty it's a pretty triumphant story in that respect and so i want to talk to you about becoming a writer
1: yeah which
0: you know is a um it's a difficult road for anybody but in particular for somebody who traveled the road that you've traveled so um just talk about how you got to the the point where you began to get interested in writing maybe gave yourself permission to consider it as a viable path because it's, you know, it's a difficult, it's a difficult one for sure.
1: Yeah, I, I resisted for a very, very long time. Um, I didn't want to be a writer because, um, I want, I, you know, I was raised, to really understand the importance of money. You know, everything was held over me and any time money was spent, I was told. And so, um, I had a lot of insecurities around money, um, both security and insecurity. Um, you know, I, I, I became pretty good with money pretty early on, which, um, you know, is also thanks to my mother. And she sort of raised me, um, you know, she was like, you have two things going for you. It's, you know, you can save money and you can speak English. So those were the things I had going for me. And I held on to those things, actually. Um, So uh, I really didn't want to be a writer. Um, In undergrad, I was a creative writing and Asian American studies double major. And I ended up in creative writing, just because I took so many creative writing classes that by the end of my junior year, it, like I only had to take one more class to, to be a major. So I sort of fell into it, um, but I didn't want to face it. Um, I spent, a, after college, I spent a year teaching English in Taiwan. Um, then I came back and sort of tempted all over the city, trying to find a job, Um and I ended up at, it's really funny, I ended up at um, AARP, right out of college, right into AARP. Um, and I worked there for three years as an executive assistant. And, you know, those three years were really important for me um, because um, it gave me it gave me stability that I really didn't have up until that point. I never had stability like the way I did at AARP. And I'm super grateful for it. Um, and... At the end of the that of those three years, I sort of had to figure out you know what did I want to do? Did I want to go to grad school or did I want to try to figure out how to um transfer into they have an editorial team as well um so I could have uh, uh transferred to the editorial team, but that was in d c and and I just felt like I wanted um to give myself two years to um feel like I had a right to, um, a right to be a writer. And I think going to grad school was the permission that I sought. Um, and even much after or much later, I, you know, I, sometimes I still feel like an imposter, you know, um, (laughs) when my agent, um, told me she loved my book and wanted to represent me, I was like, I, did you read it? <laughs> and I just, you know, it, it's just taken a long time for me to feel like a writer. Um, you know, English is my second language. Um, even within my MFA program, there were not a lot of writers of color, never mind um, ones writing about the type of content that I was broaching. Um and that was really hard for me. Um it felt very isolating in, in, you know, some some other ways. Um and I don't really, you know, I think this is the first time in my life that I actually feel like a writer.
0: On this podcast?
1: Yeah. On this podcast <laughs> this very moment. No. Um since the publication of the book is the first time that I you know, I didn't even know if the, the book was literary. You know, I was like, is it going to be commercial? Is it going to be literary? Like, who is going to like it? Who's going to pick it up? Uh, You just don't know. You just don't know. And um, imposter syndrome, you know, has been really difficult for me. um, Because also, it's a huge privilege to be a writer. Um, And what you don't talk about, or what you don't really see enough of, is just how class comes into play as a writer, and um, and I just, you know, I didn't have the support. I didn't have the support and I just um, couldn't, so I've always had a job, I've always had a day job. And that was the only way I could write this book. Um, I saved a ton of money so I could go to grad school and then I, you know, I also have loans. Um, and I put myself through grad school. Um, and now is really the first time that I've been able to pursue um, what I want to pursue, which is teaching. Um, so I've been teaching since I was actually laid off at my day job during COVID. So,
0: um,
1: maybe it's a silver lining. Um, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, um, you know, just that, um, stability versus being an artist. Um, and ultimately, you know, I, I haven't really thought, it out fully, but I think, you know, uh, I'm, I'm newly engaged. Congratulations. Um, thank you. But I think even that, right. Like having someone, um, having that security, um, of having someone in your life that is your partner did a lot for me. Cause I, I really didn't have anyone. Um, I didn't have any family members. Um, I felt, very misunderstood by my friends. Um, and, um, I had trouble finding the right partner too. Um, and you know, after we met was when I felt like I could let go of the book in the sense that I could have an agent look at it. Really? Yeah.
0: That makes sense though. That makes emotional sense.
1: It does make emotional sense in hindsight. Um, but you know, that really resonates with me right so i I think I could have finished the obviously I don't think it would have been as good, but i I could have finished the book you know five years ago uh three years ago, but I finished it when I did because um again the stability it was the second time in my life that I felt that sort of stability
0: well uh, it's also like I was uh saying I, I said this to you in an email, but you know dealing with A big chunk of time you know essentially your entire childhood Mm -hmm. and then into your early adulthood uh you know you're telling a big story but you do it efficiently and it makes a lot of sense to me from a writerly perspective why a a decade was necessary you know Mm -hmm. it's you got to make a lot of choices and you've got to make sure that the reader is along for the ride and isn't getting lost because obviously the you know the memories are are, um, clear to you, you know, your, your memories Mm -hmm. of your childhood are clear to you, but to bring somebody into a story this complex, um, you know, that's a lot of labor.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It is a really complex story. Um, yeah. So the question of like me being a writer, it's, it's been a really, really tough process. Um, and you know, in that 10 years of writing that book, I, I, I would claim to be a writer, but I don't necessarily know how much of a writer I really, truly felt because my day job was like an executive assistant or an office manager. And, you know, there was such a difference between what I was trying to create versus um, how I was making money. Um, And, you know, I make, I made a lot more money being an office manager than I do teaching now. So that's a really interesting class um, choice for me to make as well. Um, and I'm very conscientious of that. Sure. It's, it's hard. Yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult.
0: Yeah, the the book, uh, you know, towards the end of the book, you talk about um, experiences that you had as a young adult working for a startup. Um, mm-hmm. I've worked for multiple startups, so this part of the book resonated with me. I know, <laughs> I know those environments, uh, you know. That
1: makes me so happy. That second half of the book was, um, yeah, I didn't know how to I, – I, one of the reasons it took 10 years is because I, I didn't know how to end the book.
0: Well, I think, like, I, for me, it worked on a, on a couple of levels. Like, first of all, for somebody who is as alone in the world as you uh, – you know, were, especially at that point in your life, you know, not having the safety mm-hmm. net or the familial support that a lot of kids just out of college would have. Yeah, um, And you have
1: to understand, like, I'm also an immigrant. So there's, a, I'm just not familiar with systems. Like it took me so long to figure out how to fill out that FAFSA form.
0: <laughs> <right>.
1: <laughs> like, I think I cried right. because like, uh, it, it, you know, these systems that are in place, um, you know, aren't accessible to immigrants. And my parents didn't help me any, but they didn't understand any of the system either. And so I had to navigate all of it by myself. And that's, that's been really, really hard too. Sure. Sometimes I have to do my taxes, and I I think about crying because it all comes back well, when I'm doing my taxes. That's well, when it comes back. This sort
0: of bureaucratic tedium is difficult for people who are like eighth generation, let alone mm-hmm. first generation. It's hard yeah. for it's hard for everybody, and tedious for everybody, but especially so for somebody in your shoes. And I guess I you know the the part of the book that deals with you working this job uh, at this startup, it it functioned for me at the familial level. I was thinking of the ways in which like your work community, especially when you're working a nine to five in an office Mm -hmm. becomes a kind of second family. You know, these are the people you're spending your time with every day Mm -hmm. and you get to know people. Um, And then the other um, level that it worked on for me has to do with this immigration narrative, the American dream narrative, Mm -hmm. um, the you know, thwarted expectations or dashed ideals that one um, inevitably is going to have to reckon with when you enter into capitalism, (laughs) Um, unless I guess you have some sort of gilded path or extraordinarily lucky situation. But um, I think with a startup, you know, it's, it's such a high energy, high emotion environment because everybody's got all these hopes, you know, kind of grafted onto it. And when a startup implodes the way that the one that you worked for did, I've been, on, I've been at startups that have imploded. Um, it happens quickly. It can be disorienting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I found it poignant. I found it to be very poignant because, again, the sanitized narrative that we're fed is that you do all the right things. You go through school. You get mm-hmm. your degrees. You're self-sufficient. You work that job at Sears through college as you did. Mm-hmm. I mean, you did everything right. You know, Mm -hmm. and then you get out there and you find this job and, you know, there's a brutality to the end of these companies. Um, And also, you know, the the one that you described in particular was just like riddled with bad behavior. You know, like people just not not being honest and not treating people properly. Mm
1: -hmm. They still owe me money. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, the entire company, Um, like two months of wages. Um, And, you know, I think that guy totally got away with it. You know, he filed for bankruptcy, and I think he's got another company. Jeez. And it's like how many it, – it wasn't just, you know, the employees. It was everyone we owed money to. Right. I felt so awful because I had hired all of these people, you know, like what, one of the worst ones was like um, I had ordered two cases of like $60 champagne bottles. So they were all worth $60, and we basically just never paid them.
0: It's like Donald. That's like Donald Trump, just like stiffing all of his contractors. Oh yeah, oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's exactly like that. And like they don't care. But me, I was the one ordering it. I was the one being like, "Yeah, can you bill us?" Like, I felt awful doing those things. Um, so that was a lot of it too. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, startup. Wow. I can and, go on and on about startup.
0: Well, I want to. I want to tie it back to narrative concerns like writerly concerns because this Mm -hmm. is towards the end of the book um without giving anything too, uh i don't want to give away too many details but um the book does end with you um rediscovering your relationship with your grandmother Mm -hmm. um and like i i want to talk to you about the creative decisions that you made Mm. Around how to put this story down on paper in a manner that is both true to your experience, mm-hmm. but also palatable to a reader who might pick the book up in a bookstore. And there's a, a phrase, um, you know, to be kind to the reader, especially mm-hmm. when you're, you're telling stories that involve abuse and trauma Yes. Or just diff, like really wrenching, difficult emotional mm-hmm. stuff. Like mm-hmm. I think this is a challenge that a lot of writers face. Is like, okay, I want to be honest. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about the hard stuff, but if you the, the the thing that nobody tells you is that if you do too much of that, people will put the book down.
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I learned um, from. Uh, one of my favorite books, autobiography of a face, which is by Lucy Greerly. Um, Anne Patchett wrote an afterward in that book. Cause she's, she's now gone, but um, she basically talks about how, um, how Lucy spared the reader. And that just really resonated with me. Cause I had been, you know, I had so many pieces uh, about all the awful things that happened to me. And, you know, working with them for years and years and years, um, I didn't know what including all of the most awful things would do to serve the reader. And, um, and I think that was a question I kept going back to, you know, how do I want this reader to experience this? What do I want them to walk away with? What do I want to leave them with? Um, And so I try to step out of, like, my um, self-characterization on the page, right? Um, And what I mean by that is, you know, I tried really hard to not include too much emotional exposition. Um, And, you know, I think in some ways that left a bigger impact, Um, because it allows the reader to feel exactly what I felt without me telling them how I felt. Um, it was, I think those scenes are relatively self-evident. So, um, I think that's one thing that really helps with the book. I think another thing that I tried really hard to do was, um, by setting scene in a way that was super generous to the people that I was recognizing. So for example, in that opening scene, it's the father and son that's like working with each other and um on the iron press. Um you mean in the sweat it, in the sweatshop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they sort of come back and um you know I I'm so lonely in that part of the book that um what I notice is just the way they work together. Um, and the way that they're trying to, um, ease each other's burdens. And I love that about them. And I, I just wanted that for myself. So like the, so everything I included, even with the setting was to serve a purpose. And that was to allow the reader to experience what I was experiencing. Just this envy of, you know, these two people working together in a sweatshop. Um, I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> I'm sorry, Brad.
0: No, you did. You did for sure. And, you know, um, I know we don't have all day. Um, I know you probably have to get to the rest of your day. But what it makes me think about, um, as you describe this scene, when you're like a child in this sweatshop working, is that, you know, we've talked about the immigration narrative that you're um, mm-hmm. that you're writing here. And we talk about family and we've talked about trauma and mm-hmm. capitalism and the american dream and you know that part mm-hmm. of the assimilation story but one aspect of your story that we haven't gotten to yet which i think um underlies all of it is that there's an uh, there's a gender narrative here you know you're also yes. a young woman mm-hmm. which has a great impact at every level of this story right i mean if 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 yes. you had been a son I wanna say I read somewhere when I was prepping that had you been a boy, it mm-hmm. would not have even been possible for you to come over from China to join your mother and her new family in Queens. Is that correct?
1: Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, the uh, one child policy was still in place then. So I think on a lot of levels, my mother couldn't have remarried in China. That was one another reason why she came to the United States. Um, And she told me um, that if I was a boy, she wouldn't have been able to bring me because, um, you know, I would carry the name for my father, my last name. Um, And, you know, China has a really long history of not um, favoring boys over girls always. Um, And I think that's beginning to change just because, you know, uh they killed off a lot of girls and now there's not enough girls for any of the guys to marry in china um that's another story um but yeah i you know um my value was never as great as my brother and and that came down to the granular level meaning like i couldn't have too much soy sauce because um my birthmarks would become um, more prominent, or I couldn't eat what he was eating because I had to watch my weight and he didn't. Um, so it was like everything. He, you know, he was a boy; and he could go out and play, and I, I couldn't. Um, and that's that's also another reason why those moments in childhood is so like dreamy and wonderful and filled with freedom, because I didn't have that freedom once I came to the United States. Um, you know, I had to walk properly, dress properly. Um, everything had to be like a girl. Um, and that was a difficult transition for me, too. Um, so wait, yeah, I, I got I, I to
0: gotta ask. I, I don't mean to interrupt, but does soy sauce make your birthmark stand out more?
1: Apparently, according to my mother, it does.
0: Okay. I've never heard that. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have mm-hmm. to watch my soy sauce intake.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, there's just like a lot of weird... Lots of weird um superstitions and stuff as well um but yeah, um I think um, gender has always been such a huge huge um on both sides of the family um as as important, I think as sort of the conservative you know um me being a girl and my stepfather being a man, and therefore I couldn't you know they used to watch tv in my parents room my 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 half siblings but i couldn't because my stepfather's a man and i'm a girl and it wouldn't be proper but that was incredibly isolating for you know the entire 10 years i lived in that household um you know every night they would just go into my parents bedroom and i wasn't allowed to go Ugh. um so you know, um, and that was, you know, it's supposedly for my benefit. Um, yeah. So it was really conservative, somewhat backwards. Um, and that's still, you know, true in a lot of ways. Um, you know, my partner, (laughs) my partner wipes down the table, uh, when my, with my grandmother and she's like, Oh my God, you have such a good one. He cleans. Uh, but if I clean and you know, it doesn't matter at all. Like she's like, she's always like, why aren't you cooking? Why aren't you doing this? And, um, uh, but every time my, my partner does something, it's just, Oh my God, did you see that he, you know, <laughs> bought me over a cup? Like, wow. <laughs> but you know, th- that, that, that is generational.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. Like the, the expectations and, um, it's like a, you know, an uneven playing field to say the least. It is.
1: And the, and the, and the sad part is like the reason the, the, the reason they, they do that is because the sons are supposed to take care of the parents when they're old. But in reality, it's always the women in the family taking care of the, like, it's all my, it's my mom and my aunts taking care of my grandmother now. Like, the boys don't do anything,
0: right? Maybe they
1: they help move, help her move sometimes. Right. But you know, she's always treated the boys better than the girls.
0: So uh, what about you said earlier that you don't have much of a relationship with your mother? Uh, I'm curious around the publication of this book. If you've been in contact, I can't help but wonder, um, has she read the book? Do you expect anyone in your family to read the book? If, if, If they have, have you heard from them?
1: I don't think I'll ever hear from them. Um, I, my relationship with my family is as it stands in the book. I haven't seen my mother in eight or nine years. Um, And I, it's been a lot longer than that since I've spoken to or seen my half siblings. Um, Yeah, it's a terrible situation. Um, And they do know that, uh, I mean, it's, it's in the book, but, um, when I told them I was right, when I was in grad school and I told them I was writing nonfiction, um, my, uh, my mother came to my graduation, but no one else did because I wrote nonfiction. Um, and then with the book, um, my mother does not understand. No one in my family understands. And even my grandmother's against me, but, um, there's nothing she can do to me and that's the silver lining
0: <laughs> well
1: so uh yeah
0: listen i have great admiration i hope that this book has like unburdened you in some way to like lay it, it to lay it down if only so that you know these things are complicated right their trauma's difficult i think you raise the question like uh explicitly this way in the book like well, wait a minute. What constitutes abuse? How do I know mm-hmm. if I have been abused? I, I had a mm-hmm. conversation recently with an author about this because it, you know, it's a part of trauma and suffering that we don't talk about enough. Is the way in which it can be confusing to know how to define your experience. Um, you know, like, did this happen? Does this qualify? Mm-hmm. Am I entitled mm-hmm. to feel this way? Like, am I mm-hmm. am I being dramatic here? You know, it's like those kinds of questions that occur to us and um, I think that this is, if nothing else, hopefully for you, a way of of drawing it into some focus, putting down the truth, even though there are people who might prefer that you did not. You know, you got to write Mm -hmm. your story and you published a story. It's the kind of story, especially within like the immigrant narrative Mm -hmm. category that we don't see enough of, I don't think.
1: We don't. And that's because, um, you know, I feel really fortunate, but like with what I've gone through and then becoming a writer, it's, it it takes, I mean, it, you know, it takes a decade to get out of my situation. It takes another decade to sort of recover. And then it takes a decade to write a book. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, so, um, you know, most people in my situation don't have the time, the commitment. Um, and for me, it felt like a vocation. It felt like something I had to get out of me. Um, and you know, in hindsight, I, it just feels like a miracle. It really does.
0: Well, kudos to you. Uh, I really, I really enjoyed it and I have a lot of admiration, like I said, for all that you've been able to accomplish, despite all that you've been through, it's uh, it's, it's heroic. And I guess like I always ask people this, are you working? I don't mean to, to me- <laughs> I don't mean to give you another task since you just finished a, yeah. de- a decade, a decade of, of slogging away at this. But now that this story is told, you know, which is like the story you obviously mm-hmm. needed to tell yes. with this one behind you, do you have a sense of what might be in store for you creatively going forward?
1: I feel so much freedom, Brad.
0: Yeah, right?
1: (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) it's amazing. (laughs) I can do whatever I want now. Yes. Um, And, yeah, uh, I would love to write a book of fiction. Um, I think, you know, uh, I'm very character-driven. So I'm really looking at maybe some historical fiction. Um, What I've been contemplating is, you know, who I consider my forefathers um you know they're not the people in china they're not you know in wenzhou they're they are in america and and you know um just chinese immigrants in this country that story has been erased over and over and i would love to see some literature about it so i, w- I, I that, that's sort of what i'm looking at hopefully i can write a book about Generational trauma in the United States at a much younger, uh, earlier time.
0: Hmm.
1: And one thing, oh, one thing that you made, made me think about in this really great conversation we're having is also, you know, the trauma that we bring with us as immigrants. Um, because it is something that's on top of the assimilation, right? Um, or underneath it. Um, because every immigrant, when they come here, there is a reason that they're here. Were they running away from something? And if they are, what kind of trauma was that? And is this more traumatic? Is it less traumatic? How do we hear from that trauma? Hmm. Um, or do we just, you know, uh, give it to our kids? Yeah,
0: I can't help but think of uh, what's happening in Afghanistan right now as we talk mm-hmm. And you know, oh my God, the end of, of August 2021. It's like I'm seeing all these pictures and videos of, um, you know, Afghan refugees arriving in the United States and elsewhere. And I'm just thinking to myself, like, what's gonna happen to them? Like I know it's great Mm -hmm. it's great that we've gotten them out, but like who's waiting here to help them make this huge transition? Like, talk about traumatic. It's traumatic enough to like have to live through the intensity of the past couple of weeks, but then to uproot yourself Mm -hmm. move to a completely new country. You might have a language barrier, I mean you're, everything. 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 Yeah. There's a, a long I'm road like, in front of these people.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's like, what do they do? What do they do first? Right? Like, you know, I guess it has to be survival. So it's like, where do I live? What do I eat every day? And then you worry about, you know, getting information, potentially learning English. But then, when do you, when do you um, unpack all that's happened to you?
0: Right. Right right you know you're gonna have so many logistical immediate concerns Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. survival related concerns yeah and then underlying all this is this enormous emotional suffering and Mm -hmm. you know these wounds that need tending that probably won't get tended
1: no they won't get tended
0: Uh, that's why they get Um, that's why they get passed down it's like Mm -hmm. it's like Mm -hmm. you know the work that you're doing right now in therapy is work that probably needed to be done like 10 generations ago. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like it It, yes. it works yes. its way down through the, the chain. And hopefully at some point somebody is able to break the, those cycles. And you seem to be the person in your family th- that is doing that. And- that's kind of awesome in a way. I mean, I know it's a big struggle and it comes Mm -hmm. with its challenges, but when you think about it and like, when you think about it through the lens of family history and through the long lens Mm -hmm. of time, like it's pretty extraordinary, the opportunity that you have and that you've, that you've made use of to do that because it can change the course of your family history going forward. Do you know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yeah and that's you know something I get from the publication of this book just um so much gratitude because I am on the other side. I get to appreciate you know um sort of not being um, within my mother's reach <laughs> and uh you know choices of 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 work and um you know, how I live my life, who I'm with, um, yeah, there's just, it would have been a very different life.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't want to ask a too personal question, but considering the the book that you've written and the, uh, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want, but I can't help but want to know, mm-hmm. um, after having such a difficult family experience and having gone through all that you've been through and now you're getting married like mm-hmm. do you have thoughts of having a family? Like
1: Yeah, I that's actually um where my mind's at right now because again like I feel like now I can if I wanted to. Before this book was out, I I I couldn't even think about it, right? Because I'm like, no, I have to I have to get this book out first. Um and now I can think about other things. And to be honest, I don't know. Hmm. I don't know because I really want to be an artist I want to continue to write um, but it doesn't pay to write so I'm gonna have to have a job and then I you know don't have the support Um, my partner has some support but um, you know we don't have much support and that again it for me it's a choice Mm. and I don't know what I'll choose. Okay. Well, I think it's a cliffhanger.
0: Yeah. It's a cliffhanger. Then. It's a cliffhanger. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, uh, I've loved talking with you. Congratulations, um, on the book and, and, uh, I don't know on all that you've overcome to get to this spot. I'll be interested to see what you come up with next as a writer. I hope you take some time to enjoy the publication of this book before you dive into the next big project. And, uh, maybe we'll talk again down the road.
1: Yeah, I hope so. Next book, Brad. All right. (laughs) Take it easy. Thank you so much for having me.
0: All right. There we go. That is Anna Q. And her new book is called Made in China, a memoir of love and labor available now from Catapult. You can find Anna on the internet at AnnaQ.com. She is on social media as well. She's on Twitter where her handle is uh, at quilling it q u i l l i n g i t you get it right i love a pun she's also on facebook and instagram anna q made in china the critically acclaimed new memoir go get your copy right away The Other People podcast is offered freely. Did you know that? The entire archive of this podcast is available to you, the listener, for free. That's more than 700 episodes. That's a lot of content. It's all there for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you like this program, if you had a pleasant experience, if you listen regularly and get something from the show, I hope you'll consider supporting the show. You can do that for as little as $1 a month. Just throw, you know, whatever you can afford into the hat. Tip your server if it's possible. To do that, just go to Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Patreon.com slash other PPL pod. There are different tiers, different levels of support as you move up the scale you can get stuff. A t-shirt, a tote bag, a sticker, a coffee mug. I will wish you a happy birthday. I'll send you a happy birthday voice message. Each and every year. I will write you a postcard. Come on now. Patreon.com slash pod. If you would like to write to me, the email address for this show is letters at OtherPPL.com. Letters at OtherPPL.com. The Other People Podcast has its own YouTube channel. Did you know that? The entire archive is on YouTube. Are you kidding me? Go to YouTube. You can listen to the show on YouTube. Smash that subscribe button. Other people with Brad Listy YouTube channel. Search for it by name. Use the funny spelling Other PPL. Don't forget this show has its own app. That too is free. Get the app. Stay tuned. Good stuff in the pipeline. And the podcast is celebrating its tenth birthday this week. What? <laughs>